So Luke chapter 7, reading from verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Thank you, Sue. Well, good morning. Please keep your Bibles open and... Uh... I'm going to pray as we uh, come to this part of God's Word. Year 6 to 8 are heading out for Bible study with Bertie and James. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your Word. We ask now that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to respond to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, Ben said earlier, they say there are only two certainties in life. Death and Taxes. It's uh, been attributed to uh, Benjamin Franklin, apparently. He, uh, he said this. And with that uh, reality in mind, I thought that the, uh, this sign, the following sign, is, um, is a little ironic. <laughs> if death doesn't get you, the Newcastle Tramway Authority will. <laughs> the certainty of death and taxes. And even if you can manage to avoid tax... None of us can escape death. 
the prognosis for us all is simple. We will all die. Well, that's a cheery thought, isn't it? It's certainly one that our culture tries very hard to suppress and to sideline. Death is something we avoid. We we distance ourselves from, we deny, we defy, we silence, we sanitise, we gloss over. And yet the reality is that death is horrible. It's horrendous. And we can't avoid it. I know of, of four local funerals that have happened in this past week of, of people uh, known to, our, to, to you, to, to members of our church family. Uh, a parent of, of, from uh, my kid's school, husband, father of three, tragically died of cancer last weekend, only five, six weeks after being diagnosed. It's horrible. It's horrendous. We hate it. You don't like me talking about it. Oh, gee, John, I mean, do you really have to start your sermon talking about death? Couldn't you choose something a bit cheerier? And maybe you've had a hard week and you, and you come to church and you want a bit of a pick-me-up and you know, maybe, maybe a funny story or two. You know, why do you have to talk about death? I know for some of you this topic is, is currently very painful personally because you're facing the death of a loved one. I don't like talking about it. And yet, I raise this topic this morning not to make you feel bad, not to depress you or scare you, but because God's word raises the topic. It doesn't avoid it. It doesn't suppress it or deny it or sanitize it. It it lays it before us in its horror and its pain. And yet, incredibly, what we see in God's word is great and profound hope and life, even in the face of this world that is gripped by death. Do you want some good news? Do you, know, do you know the word gospel means good news? You want some good news? You want to pick me up after a hard week? Well, have a look at Luke 7. Maybe this is familiar to you. Maybe this is the first time that you've read these words. Either way, let's listen to what God has to say to us, this good news that God has before us. Uh, to remind us of the context as we're working through Luke's gospel, Jesus has been teaching uh, to those around him. Uh, chapter 6, a large crowd gathered and, and Jesus is, is addressing his disciples and those who are listening. In the end of, uh, the end of chapter 6, he finishes his sermon and chapter 7 starts, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Notice there who he's been speaking to, it's the people who were listening. Just a little reminder that, that though there's this large crowd gathered, there was this, this smaller group who were actually listening to Jesus. He's finished speaking, he enters Capernaum. And there he encounters a a man, a centurion, who is confronted by death. The problem is that his servant is very sick. Verse 2 says, There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Now this servant is not just kind of unwell. Uh, He's not even facing... You know, long-term, perhaps debilitating uh, illness. He's about to die. What does the centurion do? Verse 3. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Jesus' reputation ha- has gone before him. He hears of Jesus. He thinks, well, Jesus can heal people. Jesus can heal my servant. And so he, he calls him to, to come and help him. I need Jesus' help. Now, what, should Jesus help him? Why should Jesus help him? Is he worthy of Jesus' help? 
Well, the Jewish elders of Capernaum, they certainly think he's worthy. Notice verse 4. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Now, this is, a slight, this is an unusual situation. Uh, you've got to remember that the Romans were the conquering, occupying force. They were the enemies of Israel. And here is a, a high-ranking Roman, a centurion. This, this guy's in charge of, of 100 uh, soldiers. And yet this particular Roman centurion was kind to the Jews. He'd even built them a synagogue. This was unusual. And the Jewish elders thought he, well, he's quite deserving of Jesus' attention. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Do they assume that Jesus' kindness comes to those who are especially deserving? Or are they simply saying, hey, Jesus, this, this guy is not your average Roman? At any rate, Jesus goes along with them. Verse 6 So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. The centurion certainly doesn't uh, see himself as as worthy or deserving of Jesus' kindness. He he, he said, I don't even deserve to have you come under my roof or, or, or even to be able to speak to you directly. This man, for for all his authority, he's in charge of a hundred men, he shows remarkable humility here. Because more than that, he shows that he understands authority. Notice how he addresses Jesus in verse 6. He calls him Lord. He acknowledges Jesus' authority, perhaps unlike the the people that Jesus had spoken of in chapter 6 who say, call him Lord, Lord, and and do not do what he says, this man acknowledges Jesus' authority. And he himself understands authority. Verse 8, he says, For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. This man knows how real authority works. People with real authority, they can just speak and things happen. And so as far as this centurion is concerned, he doesn't need Jesus to to come to his house and lay his hands on his servant or say some special prayer over him or anoint him with oil or anything like that. He knows that all that is needed is for Jesus to say the word and he will be healed. And so his request, end of verse 7 is simply, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. This man shows simple, uncomplicated, wholehearted faith. And Jesus commends him for it. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house And found the servant well. Well, what does this teach us? Two things. Firstly, it teaches us that Jesus has authority over sickness and death. He speaks the word and it happens. Uh, This servant, he was about to die, but Jesus intervened. Jesus overturned things in an instant. Jesus has authority over sickness and death. 
And so secondly, the only appropriate response to such authority is to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, as our Lord, and to trust him simply and wholeheartedly. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that the next time we're sick or, or someone we love is sick, that, that we can just pray, Jesus, just say the word and I will be healed? Should we pray that? Well, yes and no. Yes, in that our, our prayer should express that same simple trust that says, I know, Lord, that, that you are powerful. You are the creator. You are the sustainer. You have power over sickness and even death. And if you want to, you can heal me of this disease, this sickness. It's right to see and acknowledge Jesus' authority. But we also need to humbly acknowledge that he is Lord. He's not kind of our, our genie there to do our bidding. He is Lord. And if he is our Lord, then it's his will that we will want to be done. And whilst he, he can, and no doubt at times, does heal people instantly, his plans and purposes may in fact be worked out in much bigger and better ways than just through our instant healing of a sickness. And we'll see that in a bit. So we should, we should follow the example of the centurion here. We should recognise that Jesus is Lord and so humbly submit to him as our Lord. Wholeheartedly trust him whether through sickness or through healing. Well, from Capernaum, Jesus then went on to a town called Nain, where he was confronted by death. Look at verse 12. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. This is a tragic scene. This is a desperate woman. And it, it really highlights that fact. He was her only son. She was a widow. She, she had no husband. She was alone, vulnerable. And in that culture, she would, have, she would have struggled even to survive. Jesus' response, verse 13, when, he saw, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Notice again, Jesus there is called Lord, when the Lord saw her. What will the Lord, the one with such authority, what will he do? His heart went out to her. He had deep compassion for her. He said, don't cry, which might seem like a, an insensitive thing to say to a woman at the funeral of her only son. But Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows that things are about to radically change for this woman. Verse 14, then he went up and, and touched the, the bier that they were carrying him on and the bearers stood still. I want to remember that generally in, in that culture, people tried to stay away from death. If, if you touched a dead body, that would make you ceremonially unclean. But Jesus went right up to, to the dead man. He reached out and, and touched the stretcher that he was laying on. And he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus overturned death. I mean, can you imagine 
at a funeral. You're at a funeral and, and they're walking the coffin into the church. And this man passing by comes in and he, he stops the procession and he, he puts his hand on the coffin and says, I say to you, get up. And the, the coffin opens and the dead person sits up and starts talking. I, most of us would freak out. Which is actually what they did. Verse 16 in our Bible says they were all filled with awe and praise God. It's more, more literally, as another translation puts it, fear seized them and they glorified God. This man, Jesus, he has extraordinary power. He speaks and the dead are raised. The conclusion of the people, verse 16, a great prophet has appeared among us, they said. And why do they conclude that he's a prophet? Well, because they know their Bibles. They, they know about the great prophets Elijah and Elisha. Uh, both Elijah and Elisha were men in, uh, who found themselves confronted by a very similar situation, the, the death of, a, of an only son of a widow. And you can read it in 1 Kings 17 or 2 Kings 4. And on both occasions they prayed and God brought the boy back to life. And so this whole scenario with the widow of Nain screams out, hey, someone like, someone like Elijah, someone like Elisha is here. And so they conclude, a great prophet has appeared among us. And yet there's a key difference between what Jesus does and what Elijah and Elisha do. If you go back and read it, you'll, you'll see that in, in Elijah's case, what did he do? Well, he... He cried out to the Lord and, and then he stretched himself out on the boy three times as if to impart life to him. And, and then he cried out to the Lord again, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And, and the boy came back to life. In Elisha's case, he prayed to the Lord and he stretched himself out on the boy and then he turned away and he walked back and forth in the room and then he stretched himself out again and, and then the boy was, his life was restored. It's a lot of effort, it's a lot of praying, it's a lot of crying out to the Lord. And in contrast, Jesus simply says, get up, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. Jesus is more than a great prophet. In fact, the people's next words are, are truer than they possibly realise. They say, verse 16, God has come to help his people. Uh, I think they mean God has, has sent a great prophet to help his people. But in fact, God himself, in the man Jesus, has come to help his people. The Lord Jesus came, as he shows here, with authority over sickness and death. He could heal people with a word. He could raise the dead. But ultimately, that wasn't what he was about. Yes, he, he healed people, perhaps hundreds of people, perhaps even thousands of people. But then that's barely scratching the surface. What about the billions of other people who have lived and suffered sickness and died throughout this world, throughout history? Jesus didn't come to, to heal a few sick people. Or even to raise a few dead sons of widows as, as good and worthy a cause as that, that was. Jesus had a much bigger, far-reaching and eternal plan. You see, why did Jesus heal people and raise the dead? Well, in one sense it's because he could and because he cared. 
But it's also because he was giving a glimpse, a, a foretaste of the bigger picture, a foretaste of the new age that he was bringing, the kingdom of God, a place where there would be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away, as it says in Revelation 21. Jesus came not just to heal a few people and, and raise, a few, raise the dead a few times, only for them to then die again 10, 20, 40 years later. Jesus came to overturn death once and for all by overturning the thing that lies beyond death, the thing that is even worse than physical death. Jesus says there is something worse than death. Luke chapter 12 Verse 4, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Friends, death is bad, but the judgment that follows is far worse for those who are unprepared. I mean, consider Jesus as he faced his death on the night before he died. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed with great anguish. It says sweat, uh, uh, drops of sweat and blood fell to the ground. Why? Why was he in such great anguish? Well, it wasn't the physical death that, that lay before him. I mean, crucifixion was, was horrible. It was, it was awful, shameful, painful, horrendous way to die. But it wasn't his, his fear of physical suffering in death. I mean, many a martyr have, have died with seemingly far less anxiety than, than Jesus. I don't think Jesus was, was less brave than them, that he was fearful of the physical suffering. No, as he prayed, he prayed, take this cup from me. This cup. It's not talking about crucifixion. It's talking about the cup of God's wrath. God's holy and righteous and just anger against sin, against all sin, was about to be poured out on Jesus. The Son of God was about to drink the cup of God's wrath. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is something far worse than death. There is God's judgment against our sin. That's why Jesus came. That's what he came to, to address, to confront, to overturn. Which is also why 1 Corinthians 15 says, The sting of death is sin. And notice, it's not the other way around. We might think, well, what's the worst thing about sin? Well, it's that it leads to death. So the sting of sin is death. But it doesn't say that. The sting of death is sin. The worst thing about death is the sin that brings judgment and condemnation after death. If the, if the bee is death, then the sting of the bee is sin. And Jesus came not to, to temporarily relieve the suffering of a few thousand people. He, 
He came to overturn and liberate the the whole order of reality for all humanity. He came to deal with the sting of death, with sin, to remove the sting, to be stung himself as he bore the wrath of God for your sin and for my sin. And so death has been overturned. It no longer has the victory. The bee is stingless. Yes, we still face physical death in this fallen world and it is horrible, it's tragic, it hurts. But it's not the end for those who trust in Jesus because he's opened the way to the new age of his kingdom, the kingdom that extends beyond the death of these physical bodies, that extends to the resurrection body, to the eternal glory that follows. Yes, Jesus has the authority to to fix things up, in the here and now, which he may or may not do. He, he doesn't promise to do that, but he has the power to do that. He did for the centurion. He did for the widow of Nain. But far greater than that, he has the authority to fix things up for us for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So how should we respond? Well, firstly, we should We should marvel at his power and his compassion. And we should trust him with that same simple, wholehearted faith that says, yes, you are my Lord. What you say goes. There might be some of you here who haven't yet done that. Maybe you're new to Christianity, new to church. Maybe maybe you've been silently resisting him for a long time. Whatever the case, if you haven't yet accepted Jesus as your Lord, as your Saviour, why don't you do that? What's stopping you? Death is bad, but judgment is worse. And Jesus came with authority and with compassion, and he calls on you to repent, to acknowledge him, receive him as Lord and as Saviour. Trust him as your Saviour. Follow him as your Lord. And secondly, for all of us, if and, if and when we, we, we struggle with the reality and the pain of death in this world, when we're confronted by death, then know that Jesus knows and Jesus cares. He is gracious and compassionate as he was with his, with his widow. And cling on to the wonderful reality that Jesus has conquered death once and for all. He has removed its ultimate sting. We can look forward to a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That's our future. That's our future for all who trust in Jesus. Which means, thirdly, that that's what matters now. See, there are lots of, lots of good things to do in this life. But the best thing we can do is to live for the kingdom to come. To help others to know and to trust and to continue to know and to trust in Jesus. So let's use this life, short as it is, to get ourselves and others ready for eternity. I once heard a a, a comparison that says, this life compares to eternity like an orange. The, The ripples on an orange peel compared to the Rocky Mountains. We're living in the the ripples of an orange peel compared to the vast glory of eternity 
that's before us. So let's live now with Jesus as Lord. Let's cling to the victory and the hope that lies before us. And let's live now to get ourselves and others ready for the kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do thank and praise you that you are God, you are Lord over all, you created all. And we thank you that you have not left us in the mess of this world under the shadow of death. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming into this world. Thank you for your compassion and your love. And thank you that ultimately for the victory over sin and death that you have won for us. Lord God, we thank you. Please help us. Please comfort us when we are confronted by death in this life. Please help us to cling to you and to know the victory that you have won. To know that this life is short. And Father, help us to live now, to use this life now, to get ourselves and others ready for eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.